everybody. I'm Gary Ebersol. Richard Kipling here. And I'm Randy Schultz. Welcome to Camp Codger, a podcast for people in their golden years. Join us to hear rocking chair wisdom from three old guys. Today we're discussing the challenging topic of loneliness and a sense of isolation that is common with many senior citizens. We'll be speaking with Dr. Carla Parisonato, a leading voice in geriatric medicine on this topic. Before we get started, I think Randy has had a codger moment recently. Well, in a manner of speaking, Gary, I have. It wasn't my direct experience. My dear wife, Patty, decided after listening to our chat GPT episode that she wanted to find out more about this. So this last week, chat GPT made available an app, an app version for the phone. Patty wanted to be one of the first people to download that app. She's trying to download this app. But before she can do that, she has to tell somebody at Apple how old she is, right? (laughs) Enter her birth date. The only way for her to enter her birth date was to go to the little calendar, right? The month-by-month calendar, which, of course, starts with the current calendar. Then she has to back arrow through, I'm not going to say how many years, decades, decades of months. By golly, she was going to stick with us because she wanted that chat GPT app. So she spent like 15 minutes hitting the back arrow, (laughs) going back in time a month at a time (laughs) to get to her birth month so she could click on the actual date on that month so that the app would accept her application for the chat GPT technology. If you're an older folk... (laughs) You got to be pretty patient to get through. There's a little glitch there our friends at Apple should know about. I don't know how many people have decided not to download that app because, I don't know, you're discriminating against older people by making us hit the back arrow so many times. I'm just thinking of 12 times 74. How many clicks is that? That's a lot. It's like click, click, oh, click, man. click, 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 click. Oh my God. That is funny. That's a lot of clicks. That's great, Reddy. That's a codger moment. Richard, introduce our listeners to Dr. Personato. Some of us are particularly lucky older folks. We have family and friends who we see or communicate with frequently. We have hobbies and activities that keep us busy. We're financially comfortable enough that we can live independently and travel to wonderful places. We are in reasonably good shape physically and mentally. Like I said, we are lucky. But we all have friends, neighbors, relatives, and acquaintances who are not so lucky. And any one of us may be disguising the fact that all is not so well. That we experience moments of isolation where even if you're attending a social event, you feel alone, perhaps even depressed. Experts tell us that this is not a minor issue. Loneliness can lead to physical and cognitive problems. Research indicates it can be as harmful to good health as smoking or alcohol abuse. But today, we're lucky again. We have one of the nation's foremost experts in loneliness and social isolation in camp with us to discuss what loneliness and social isolation are and how to deal with them. From 2017 to 2021, 
Carla Parasinoto was Associate Chief for Geriatrics Clinical Programs at the University of California at San Francisco, overseeing inpatient and outpatient clinical programs. She's now Professor of Gerontology at UCSF. She received her BA from Barnard College, holds a master's from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, and has her medical degree from Tufts. Carla is passionate about improving the training of medicine residents in elderly patient care. She's also spent considerable time working in international settings, including El Salvador, Kenya, and Mexico. Welcome to Camp Codger, Carla, and thank you so much for coming to camp. Thanks so much. And actually, this is part of having and making connections. So thank you for already providing some solutions. Well, let me ask you right off the bat, just how big an issue loneliness and isolation are for seniors? Well, I'll tell you, you're bringing up this topic is very timely, even though I've been talking about this for over a decade. Yeah. Just a week ago, the Surgeon General published a report, an advisory, saying this is a public health crisis. And this week, the White House published a statement on the importance of protecting the nation's mental health, and part of that including connection. So that's how big of an issue is. If we talk about specific numbers, specifically in older adults, uh, studies that I did actually over a decade ago showed that over 43% of people over the age of 60 reported some degree of loneliness. And other studies show that isolation, people who are socially isolated, were about one in four older adults. I will also say I'm a geriatrician, so I am ageist in that I'm biased towards older people. But <laughs> what we see in the Surgeon General's report is that this is actually someone that's, that's in some ways age agnostic and affecting even our younger generations. Are loneliness and isolation the same thing? Where might depression fit in here? Really good question. So they are not the same thing. And it's actually very, very important to note that. And actually, when we look at studies trying to see how correlated they are, they are not very correlated. So what that means is that you can have both, you can have either, but they don't all have to be together. So loneliness is really something that's subjective. It is the discrepancy that you feel between the relationships that you have and those that you wish you have. It can also be related to the quality of relationships. Social isolation is more about the number and the quantifiable relationships. And I think tied to all this and something that the Surgeon General um, made a point of talking about is just social connection as, a, as an overall topic. And he highlights just three components of social connection. So it's kind of just thinking broadly, if I think about myself Am I someone who's socially connected or what can I do to maintain my social connection? There's three main components of that. So one of them is the structure, which really it's more around the isolation piece, which is, do you live in a household? How many people are in it? Do you have a friend circle? Are you partnered or married? So it's kind of the number and variety and types of relationships. So that's structure. And then you look at the function which is how satisfying are those relationships? Do you receive emotional support? Is there mentorship? What happens in a crisis? And then there's the quality of the relationships. Are you, again, are you satisfied with these relationships? Are the relationships causing strain? Which is why you'll see in the studies that I did years ago, the majority of people who reported feeling lonely were married. Really? Yes. That's kind of sad. It is kind of sad. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think what it what it does is make us think that things are not binary and black and white and that we mm. need to ask questions and we can't assume Hey, Carla, just because you're married, you're not lonely. Well, no, even though I'm married, there may be times that I feel lonely regardless of my partner or sometimes because of my partner or whatever that might be. So it just helps and makes us dive a little bit deeper. I was going to say the concept of an extended family seems to be important because we do recognize the nuclear family is more dominant in our culture, at least. We can get isolated easily. Absolutely right. And I think that this is, you know, what many of us working in this space have been talking about for a long time. And actually, if you go back and read some of Robert Putnam's original work yes. when he wrote Bowling Alone, hmm. a lot of what he talks about is just the structure and the social fabric of our world and our nation, which the Surgeon General talked on as well, is really looking at what has happened to the way we define family, how we spend time as a family, how much we socialize. There's actually these very fascinating time life uh, studies that show the amount of social time we're not spending, it's actually in the report, um, in the last 10 to 20 years, that it's just decreasing across all spectrums. I think, and I see that in my work, you know, I am a first generation American, mom's Mexican, father's Italian. You see the vast differences in how family structures are structured and how we spend time together. So I think, Gary, I think that's part of it. Hmm. Did things get even worse during the pandemic for seniors? Um, for some, yes. And I think what's important about this is in, my, in many ways, what happened to older adults in the pandemic is very much what happens to older adults in general, which is there's heterogeneity in aging, right? One 80-year-old is not the same as another 80-year-old. Right, right. So kind of to assume that everyone did terribly is actually not true. So my colleague, Ashwin Kotwal and I conducted a study in the Bay Area during the pandemic and asked this very question. And, and it was pretty mixed. Some people did worse, absolutely. Some people did the same, and some people actually did better. Hmm. And why is that? For the people that did better, there were people who were isolated and lonely, but suddenly people were like, oh my goodness, there's old people in the world, let's reach out to them. Um, and so there was actually this positive thing, right? Yep. The people that did worse were people that actually maybe had some sort of social connection and then suddenly had that taken away or had a worsening of their coexisting depression. And then there's some people who were already pretty isolated and nothing really changed for them. And so it was pretty mixed. But I think what did get worse, which is why the health effects are so important, is that there's a couple concepts to think about here. There's the prevalence rate. So how much are people experiencing this? And then what are the consequences? So in terms of the prevalence rates, the research that I had done before had always shown that older adults are kind of one of the biggest risk groups. Now what we're finding is it's actually younger adults that are really huh. having very high risks. But what happens with aging is that the risk of complications for us as we get older is just much harder and they're much worse because we don't bounce back as much from insults to our physiology and to our body. Many of us have chronic health conditions. And so if we're getting older, suffering from chronic conditions that we know loneliness and isolation face, then we're more likely to have complications. So what I saw during the pandemic, older adults died directly because of that isolation. Ooh. There was right? nobody watching either. There was nobody watching. People weren't getting into their healthcare providers. Some healthcare um, facilities had it all wrong. They were saying, keep the old people out, let the young people come in. And it's like, no, 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 keep the young people out, let the old people come in to get their medical care. And then there was this drastic fear. So I had patients that would refuse to see me 
and, and had premature deaths because they had untreated health conditions. Let me ask you this. I, I was astounded by this statistic. I found 27% of seniors live alone and twice as many women as older men live alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does mm-hmm. that mean? That's kind of a prescription for isolation, isn't it? Yes and no. So it depends on whether that living alone is chosen or not. For some people, living alone can actually be a sign of resilience, and it's a choice, and they actually do quite well. And it gets also back to those three components of social connection, is that maybe you live alone and you have fewer contacts, but if you still have someone that you have a meaningful relationship with and you can call in a crisis, that may be okay. There are some studies that show that living alone by itself is a predictor of poor outcomes, but I think it's more nuanced than this. Mm. But I do think that the sense of community and what's going on and needing to dive deeper into that living alone is by choice or not. My mother lives alone. It is not by choice because my father passed away. And so that is a big thing and change in her life. And so she absolutely has risk from being alone should something happen if she's fallen and she has had a fall and that places unique challenges to her. And so what she has had to do is really ramp up the rest of her social sphere. Is there any sense that women or men deal better with this situation? So, so this is a really fascinating question, and the literature is actually changing. So, so some of the older literature would suggest that women were at greater risk for loneliness and men to social isolation. Some of the newer studies are starting to say that there may not be as much gender differences as we think. Hmm. But part of it really depends on how the questions are asked and who we're asking. <laughs> so it's <laughs> always with science and with yeah with studies. It depends. It depends on how you construct your study and, and who, you're, who you're targeting. That's exactly right. And what questions you're asking. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Richard mentioned earlier the concept depression. of depression. Is it a cause or it is an effect? I mean, if you're depressed, you tend to want to withdraw. Mm-hmm. But then if you're isolated, you may become depressed. You must see that in patients who have a sense of isolation. We do. And really good question also. And I will tell you that when I first started this research back in, I don't know, 2008, a lot of my mentors said, oh, this isn't a real thing. It's really just depression. Well, actually, no. The actual clinical definition of depression does not include anything about isolation or loneliness. Do they coexist? Yes. Can it be bi-directional, meaning that loneliness can lead to depression? Depression can cause more loneliness? Absolutely. Mm. But I think it's important to treat them as distinct entities. And also, It's kind of this really hard thing right now with social connection and disconnection is that we need to heighten awareness because of the dramatic health effects, but we need to not pathologize it and further stigmatize people. So I don't want to say like this is a medical issue in terms of there's something wrong with you, but we do need to be aware of it and pay attention to our social health, much like we do our physical and mental health. I will also say that, and I've not done the study, but when I get billions of dollars for funding and, and can quit my day job, just <laughs> I love patient care too much, so I can't quit my day job because I like it too much. But I do have the sense that I have a feeling that there are many people that are tr- being treated pharmacologically for depression whose loneliness or isolation is not being addressed. Mm-hmm. And so we're treating the wrong thing or we're not treating the whole picture and we're not seeing the responses that we could. What is the physician's stance on this? 
So unfortunately, many of the studies have shown so far is that um, not enough people are talking about it mm. in both ways. Patients are bringing it up and, and clinicians, not just physicians, are not asking about it. And that was, you know, that's been replicated in a couple studies. Is there starting to be some more increased awareness? Yes. But I will tell you that if we put loneliness and isolation in the sphere of what we would call social determinants of health, Many clinicians are afraid to bring up these topics because they think they can't do anything about it. Mm. I can't talk about poverty because I can't do anything about it. It's like, well, but it's important for you to contextualize your patient's health and things that affect it. So in response to this, my colleague Julianne Holt-Lundstadt and I wrote um, a commentary in the New England Journal of Medicine, either in January or February this year, I'm actually laying out a framework for clinicians to start to talk about this for this very reason, because we, we make it very similar to anything else we talk about in medicine is that there's three components. The first part is to educate. So we educate on our patients on what is loneliness and isolation, what is connection and what are the risks. The second part is assessment. And, and we do have real assessment tools. And the third is respond And I think sometimes, you know, as clinicians, we get in our own way and we think, oh, my goodness, I have to solve it today. Otherwise, I've failed as a clinician. But sometimes what I have found for my patients is even the act of me saying, hey, Richard, thank you for telling me about your loneliness. And I appreciate you being honest with me. And let's keep talking about that. Like that by itself sometimes is enough of an Mm. intervention. Other times we need to go deeper, of course, and try to get more at the core and try to come up with solutions together about what that might response be. But I think we need to try to move away from or move to demystifying this topic so that clinicians and patients feel comfortable talking about this. And this is why the Surgeon General's report is so important and adds to the National Academy of Sciences report from 2020 that highlighted that the healthcare system has a role in addressing social connection. The logical question to ask is how does somebody respond to this? What kind of strategies work? This is one of these things I can understand why clinicians are sometimes befuddled because Mm -hmm. it's hard to recommend something, particularly something that may be hard for that patient to do, to change their behavior. Yep. This is a complex question and one where I think we're still trying to understand a little bit more about the evidence base. But I think as a first strategy in terms of responding and One of the things that we need to do as clinicians is understand the drivers. So we have to be careful not to assume and say, okay, Gary, because you have gray hair, I don't want to call you out. I don't want to assume that the solution for you is that you have to go to a senior center, right? It's like, that's what everyone wants to do is just go somewhere else, go to a senior center. Well, that may be the answer for some people, but it's really trying to get at the bottom of it and the core of it. So for example, for me as a clinician, it's trying to understand What is it driving? Is it loneliness or isolation? And what's driving it? So for example, if I find out, Gary, that you have hearing impairment and Mm. you're not getting out, but you want to get out and I address your hearing aids, well, then that's actually part of the solution. Mm. If I find out that, which I do have patients that say, well, I'm so afraid of being incontinent that I don't want to go out, then that's what I do. If I find out that someone is, is lonely because they've lost a spouse and haven't had grief counseling, then that's how we address it. And then there's other people that really are so disconnected that do not have other people to reach out to. And so that's when you think about, okay, there are many community programs for people to connect with. There are programs called Senior Center Without Walls where people connect virtually or telephonically. There's outreach programs, there's volunteer programs. So there's that structure as well. So 
Um, that's kind of at the individual level. Then there's, of course, like broader policy implications and also thinking about how do we design our cities? How do we design our social spaces? As we build senior housing buildings, why are we building studios and one-bedroom apartments that are not conducive to multi-generational living? Like there's a lot of bigger solutions, which I may not do with my individual patient other than talk and then I get late and then everyone's mad that I'm behind in my appointments. But... (laughs) But there is this sense of trying to get at what is needed for you. Right. Right. There's no pat answer. There's no one size fits all. No. And I think we make a mistake by shortcutting and being lazy quite often, quite honestly. The pat answer that we think people should do, go to a senior center, go socialize. For some of us who are not really social animals, it's so counter Mm, to 70 years of conditioning. And, and I will tell you that there's also really neat evidence-based interventions that we're working on. So I was fortunate to conduct a study with an amazing program in San Francisco called the Curry Senior Center, which is in the Tenderloin, mm. which has gotten a lot of press, but is a place where there's a lot of people with premature aging because of complex lives, you know, some with complex mental health disorders, but really an amazing program. And what this program did is actually connect people to peers and literally... You connect someone with similar lived experience. And what did we find over a year? People had decreased loneliness, decreased barriers to socialization, and decreased depression, which ties us back into our question earlier. So we have programs at work. You're just creating the environment to let it happen. Exactly. You can't manipulate it step by step, but at least you you can start. And one of the really cool core features of this program is that it was very malleable and not structured. Going back to Putnam's Bowling Alone, That was about a particularly American kind of a a look at America and where it had gone Mm -hmm. and been. How do we compare in this issue of loneliness and isolation to, say, Western Europe or other places? You've traveled internationally. Mm -hmm. Is it a bigger problem for Americans than it is for Frenchmen or, or Salvadorans or Mexicans? So, so very interesting, and I and I think there there is actually work going on internationally, and and you know rates are rates are pretty high in other countries as well. So I don't I don't necessarily think that it's a unique American problem because there's a reason why there's a minister of loneliness in the United Kingdom. There's a reason why there's a minister of loneliness in Japan. A minister of loneliness, did you say? Correct. Yep. This is a worldwide issue. The Mm. World Health Organization is taking this on as an issue, knowing that this is happening in other areas. Um, But I think the drivers are are different. So I'm an anthropologist from Barnard, right? So that's my that's my core. So I'm an observer, right? I'm constantly doing my ethnographic study. So when I was in Italy this January with my family, so living living what I teach, which was an inter, intergenerational trip with my mother, my husband, my daughter, and myself. Mm-hmm. And I went to give a talk, but in the meantime said, my daughter hasn't met her extended family in Italy, so we're going to take some extra time and see family. And what was so amazing to me that first day when I got there and was super jet-lagged and rather than sleeping, I said, I'm going to go walk around the town in Torino, Northern Italy, is that you saw the way the cities are structured, the town square in the middle, and everyone was out there pre-dinner, post-dinner, having their, their coffee or their small drink, walking around with the grandparents, the strollers, the dogs. I mean, we don't see that here to the same degree. In the mornings when I would go out for coffee, I saw all, all the older gentlemen outside of the cafe talking it up, <laughs> just meeting for coffee. Who does that? We don't. No, we don't. We don't make it easy to do. If you do, you have to get in a car, you have to drive someplace, and suddenly it becomes an expedition. 
No, and it's like if I wanted to get it over with my friend, it's like, can you get on my calendar and look at my calendar? I'm like, are you serious? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Amazingly enough, even people the age of Richard and I keep calendars. Yeah, I know. I know. It's electronic, yeah. Well, except for our, yeah. our co-host is not here today who does right. everything on paper. If I didn't have my calendar giving me alerts, my memory augmentation, <laughs> right, I know. which actually, that's another topic about aging and, yep. and how you yep. use the technology to make things simpler. Well, I mean, I do call it my peripheral brain, but I do worry about my working memory because I rely so much on our phone. Exactly. But you're right, that is a separate, <laughs> that is a separate topic. So, speaking of digital, yeah. where does social media come in here? Because you'd mm. think from what we hear and some of the... <laughs> time on screen that people have, older people have, is it making a difference or is it actually making it worse? So you'll love my answer. It depends. There definitely is concern amongst the younger generations, but partly that's because this is all they know. And the question is, I think, relates more to the quality of the relationships, right? In terms of what kinds of relationships are you are you using? And so I think it's very easy to blame social media, but I think it's much more nuanced than that. And again, like I think it's good to look at data and then anecdotal stories. So in our global world where many of us are displaced or like you said, far away from your family, social media has an incredible way to connect, Mm -hmm. right? I like to say that I'm not on social media, which I'm not, but I forget that like I'm on WhatsApp and I have a huge family chat (laughs) with my family across three continents. And that is a way for us to connect. And it's a way for all of us to stay connected in some small way. Is it the same as in person? No. And Louise Hockley's work out of Newark um, in Chicago has demonstrated that nothing replaces in-person interactions. And I think Uh it's important for us to remember that. Do you find any benefit for older people who don't use social media, who you recommend that they might try social media, connecting with their family, their grandkids? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that's really important is that there are a ton of of classes and opportunity. There's a program called OATS, which used to be through AARP, and I don't know if it's its own organization now, that really is about educating older adults on technology mm-hmm. because there's this fear, right? But I have personally in my own practice during the pandemic and right before seen older adults who thought they couldn't use technology suddenly get a t- an older adult-friendly tablet and connect with family visually that they hadn't seen in years and how life-changing that can be. That's and that's really, really cool. So absolutely. And I think that's where... Mm-hmm. Another tool in the kit. That's exactly right. Continuing that discussion, if I'm a senior who's feeling alone mm-hmm. or feeling isolated, what mm-hmm. should I personally try to do to combat that? So my answer to that is a couple things. I would try to think within yourself is, is, and see if you have any insight as to what that may, why may be driving that. And that takes a personal reflection to do, and that can be hard. Yeah. And the reason why that's important is because the answers might be in the, that question that you're giving yourself. And what I'm hoping that clinicians will start to do, but I think it starts at the individual level too, is that I, as a physician, should be able to talk to you, Gary, and say, hey... I see that you're feeling alone and you tell me, well, I wish I connected with my family more. And I said, okay, I'm going to give you a prescription where I want you to call your daughter, whoever it is once a week. And next time I see you, I'm going to ask you if you've done that. That's a great, great idea. Wow. 
A prescription. A prescription. I love it. It's called social prescribing, and there's this Mm. whole concept around this now. But it's again, it's it has to be individual, right? Yeah. And I've been doing this for a long time. For another patient I had who moved to a new center, she missed playing bridge. My homework to her and my prescription it was in her senior community is to find the other bridge players. Carla, so. we don't want to take too much of your time. I know you're busy. <laughs> I mean, I don't like talking about this at all. So, <laughs> <laughs> This has actually been just fascinating, honestly. We really appreciate it. Yep. If there's anything you've got to say to our listeners that you think they should be thinking about. You know, one of my favorite poets, Ruby Cower, has this poem. and She says, the irony of loneliness is we all feel it at the same time. We are not alone. And I think all of us at some point experience some degree of loneliness. It is part of being human. Not that we feel lonely, but it's that when it becomes pervasive, that's when it affects our health. And so as much as it's important for us to control our blood pressure, it's so important to protect our social health. Mm. And that means different things. It doesn't mean if you're an introvert, you suddenly have to make 5,000 friends. It means what's personally important to you in terms of making connections. Well, thanks a lot for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Dr. Perisonato's insights are important to all seniors. As she pointed out, you don't have to be socially disconnected to feel lonely. Tell us about your experiences. Do you ever feel lonely or isolated? Leave a comment below or send an email to campcodger at gmail.com. Join us next week when our guest is noted author Carl Honore. His recent book, Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives, advocates for a new way to look at what's possible and permissible in our golden years. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Camp Codger in your favorite podcast app or sign up on our website. As always, we would love to hear from you. Drop us an email at campcodger at gmail.com, post a comment at www.campcodger.com, or leave a voicemail at 505 216-6171.